It is uh, Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, title Hebron. I've missed you guys. It's good to see you. Aside, it's good to see that you're with us, man. Carlos, it's good to see you're still here. Not going anywhere, brother. You know, it's evident that you guys had a completely uneventful time in my absence. There were at least four shots fired during our children's co-op on Friday and a drive-by attempt on a lawn business. When grass cutting goes bad. I mean, I... I've seen shots fired over grass before, but it was a different kind of grass. A death and a resurrection in our Sunday service. Followed by a speedy recovery. And you can hear that D'Angelia continues to exceed the doctor's expectations at every turn. You know, the nine of us that have come back We've taken on a new name. We have borrowed the words Legio Fulminata. We had a little excitement of our own. We didn't um, have quite as much fun as you guys had. But we had the opportunity to stay and preach in five countries. Russia, Turkey, Georgia, Israel, and Egypt. I made the mistake of driving to the top of Mount Hermon. And a few of the guys, for no particular reason, stripped off their shirts. I don't know why men do that. And ran to the top of Mount Hermon to step foot into Lebanon and Syria. The IDF came to protect us from the Lebanese response. So we got to add those two countries to our sightseeing list. Not to be outdone, we traveled to the southern tip of Israel to spit into Saudi Arabia and um, travel into Egypt. We got a chance to cross from Egypt to Israel on Pesach. We ate dinner in the home of Jews on the first day of unleavened bread and we met them in Georgia because there was a power outage and we were singing from Exodus 15 and they recognized the words. They went from Georgia to Israel and insisted that we visit them in their home. And you know how it is when you get an invite and you're not really sure if they're serious? Nine days later... With thousands of people in Ben Gurion Airport, guess who we ran into in the immigration line? Where they reiterated that they wanted us to come for dinner. That night, they read from the Brit Hadashah for the very first time. The guys and I will have more to share with you on Sunday. There will be videos and all of those kind of things. Tonight, I wanted to talk to you about Hebron and being gathered to our fathers. I'm pleased to say that the tongues that came forward, the interpretations that came forward, the testimony that preceded our service has only served to encourage me in the direction of the Spirit. 
Genesis 10 is where I think we'll start this evening, although our first scripture will appear in Genesis 13. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Tell me when you get to Genesis 10, say there when you were there. There. Oh, church, I missed you. It's good to see you. Joy preached at a funeral and brought the house down while I was gone. Saints, you're extraordinary. And if I had anything to encourage you with outside of this word, everywhere that we went, in every nation that we were in, in every setting, whether it was overtly religious or overtly secular, like a bar, when we entered and we began to worship, the environment changed. People were drawn. Chefs came out of the kitchen. People took out their cell phones. And we saw people convulse like they did in the 60s at a Beatles concert just because they got to hold a Bible in their hands for the first time. This world is literally dying to know Jesus. And they need somebody to tell them. You have been equipped... You've been equipped in a way that very few have. And the impotence of the organized religious institutions is astounding. We can meet somebody on a street corner and in 10 minutes make more progress with them than the lukewarm church makes in 10 years. And the singular most disappointing time that we have was to try to connect people to a local church after their lives were rocked by Jesus and walk into the church and we couldn't even relate to the people. What you have is real. What you have is powerful. What you have is effective. And what you felt in this room a few minutes ago, you should never take for granted. Because everywhere we go in the world, it literally stops traffic. This is the one place on the planet where it seems unremarkable. Everywhere else, people literally stop what they're doing and come and gather around us. You have something that is cherished. Are you in chapter 10 of Genesis? In chapter 10 of Genesis, I want to summarize it for you. The 10th and 11th chapter are called the Table of Nations. This is where you are introduced to the descendants of Shem, Japheth, and Ham. The reason that you are being introduced so early in the story of Bereshit to these three sons of Noah's descendants is everybody in this room traces their ancestry to one of those three sons. So when we go into Egypt, they call it Mizraim. And they call it Mizraim because one of the sons of Ham was Mizraim. Every nation on the globe traces back to those three sons. The story moves on in the 11th chapter to the specific descendants of Shem that can be traced through Eber and be traced further yet through Abraham. So Genesis 10 and 11 are for the express purpose of introducing you to the specific people group that God will use to teach us all. Somebody say amen to the Israel of God. It's important that you understand Genesis 10 and 11 are introducing you to the people group that the entire Bible is about. Replacement theology has sought to corrupt this truth. 
They may be well-meaning, but they're sincerely deluded. The idea that the Bible is about some other people group is controverted on every single page from Genesis 10 forward. As we move to Genesis 12, Genesis 12 begins with the line, The Lord had said to Abram, or Abram rather, he's a Shemite, he's from Eber, he is of the specific people group we're talking about. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land. What's the next phrase say? I will show you. This is the specific place on the planet earth that God would use to teach us. Amen. So between Genesis 11 and 12, we are introduced to the specific people. We're introduced to the specific place. What do you think Genesis 13 is about? It's about the very specific plan that the people would participate in. So we want to pick up tonight in Genesis 13, understanding that the Bible is essentially the story of a specific people in a specific place following a specific plan. And everything that you need to know about God is revealed through those people in that place and that plan. Everything that you will relate to God about is revealed through those threefold, how many Damien? Threefold relationship. In Genesis 13, pick up with me in verse 14. To give you some context for verse 14, which I unfortunately have to wear my glasses to see. Abraham has just separated from Lot. Man, sometimes you just got to go a different way. In verse 14, we pick up with these words. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north, south, east, and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Before we read that next line, let us pick up on something that's interesting here. We're about to find out that this happened as Abram entered Hebron. Hebron means the seat of of association. Another Bible dictionary calls it um, an alliance. If we say an association or alliance, a third Bible dictionary calls it fellowship. We're about to have a new kind of fellowship with each other. One that started right out of the fellowship of a specific people in a specific place being revealed a specific plan. And the fact that we get to enter into their fellowship with the living God is an extraordinarily special thing. The very first thing to understanding this kind of fellowship is what God says to Abram after Lot left. We got a husband and wife couple. Look, I'm staring at Ray and Lindsay right now. What a good looking couple they are. Ray has... All of the intellect of the Ludvigsen last name. 
Got all of the passion of the Latin American Peruvian blood running through him. He's married to a beautiful snow princess back there that looks like she's from Iceland. Can we all who are married say that there have been times you had somebody over at your house and you were waiting for them to leave? In the Middle East, if you get poured a full cup of coffee instead of a third cup, it's a little hint. It's time for you to go. Sometimes it's after everybody leaves. Did you get the revelation of what your spouse was really thinking about during dinner? God waits for Abram to part company with Lot. And then Abram gets a revelation. Listen to what God says to him. Lift up your eyes. Can I tell you sometimes you got to get your eyes off of the obstacle. You got to start to look at the opportunity. Sometimes all you can see when you are staring down at the dirty real estate is an obstacle. But when you begin to lift your eyes towards the heavens, you may be standing on gutter real estate, but you got a starry view. Can I tell you that a trailer in Malibu, California might be worth more than a million dollars? It may be gutter real estate, but man, the view is worth the price. Can I tell you, if you can learn to lift up your eyes in the situation you're in, you'll start to see things that nobody else sees. Sometimes you not only got to lift up your eyes, you got to part company with who you're with. Brother gave a testimony a few minutes ago. Somebody was speaking ungodly words, so he didn't allow them around what seemed like an obstacle. Because he wanted it to turn into an opportunity. You want to hear from God? You're going to have to change your view. See, God is not looking down from a lowly position. He's got an exalted position, an eternal position, a heavenly position. And when he sees, he sees from that point of view. You got to get God's eye. Somebody say it with me. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Do you need to lift up your eyes tonight? Are you looking at a problem? Have you been told that you got something beautiful coming your way? But all of a sudden the devil is chipping away at your confidence tonight. Did you get a reprieve from some death sentence that you were supposed to have? But the devil keeps telling you it's coming anyway. It's coming anyway. You got to lift up your eyes. You need to get away from people who are speaking to you faithless words. It was on his way to Hebron that Abraham first heard the words, lift up your eyes. And can I tell you, he got a whole new view. God began to reveal to him a plan that we are still living in today. You know, the revelation that you get today might carry your descendants through the decades of their life. The second thing that we find out is Abraham has been incredibly generous. Do you, do you recognize that when he and Lot parted ways, he literally tells Lot, you pick a direction and go, and whatever direction you pick, I'll go a different direction? How is it that Abraham is so generous? How can anybody be so generous with something like that? 
What does Abraham get here when he lifts up his eyes? He gets a promise. Listen to how God says it. All the land that you see, I will give to you. When you're going to inherit everything that there is, when God has spoken to you about your future, you can be a generous person. Why can you be generous? Because you have something they don't have. And it's not money that they don't have. They don't have the kind of promise that you have. On the way to Hebron, the place of fellowship and alliance, a seat of association with the living God, Abram learned to lift up his eyes. He learned to hang on to a promise so that it didn't matter whether or not his nephew was stealing the best land. What are you hanging on to tonight? What do you value tonight? I'm here to tell you that there's nothing that I value more than fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with my fellow man. There is no possession that is worth trading for the promise. There is no view on earth that I want that competes with the view that happens when I lift up my eyes. Do you need a new view tonight? Do you need to renew your promise tonight? This church is being strengthened. It's being battle-hardened. And we will be the toughest warriors that hell has ever seen, but we will be the gentlest lovers of God that the world has ever encountered. The next thing that happens is God, when He says, lift up your eyes, He says, look to the north and the south, the east and the west. What direction is left out? He's looking up. He's looking north. He's looking south. He's looking west. He's looking east. What direction has he not looked? It's just one direction God has not instructed him about. Do you have a downcast face? It's very hard for God to bless a man who has literally made his head an iron dome. But when you lift up your eyes, when you begin to stand on the promise that is your promise, now we have a view that God will bless We have a position that God will bless. And take in what he says to you. Take it in with a Romans 8.28 kind of feeling. In all things. In what kind of things? God works for the good of those that love him. Do you love him? Then in everything in your life he is working. Do you know what that means? It doesn't matter whether you're looking to the north or the south. It doesn't matter whether you've looked east or west. God will bless the man who moves in faith. Oh, you're not listening to me, church. Pick a direction that you can show faith in and move in that direction. And God will bless you for what you do. This is moving towards fellowship with God. It's a head that is tilted towards the heavens because it's getting a view of God. It's a heart that is swollen with the promises of God and says no matter what direction I go, if I'm moving in a trust-grounded obedience to Him, I'll be blessed. Eric, you look like you're backing up. No, son, I am advancing in a brand new direction. It doesn't matter what direction you're going. You have charted your course, but who plans a man's footsteps? The Lord does it. It's the Lord. What we learn about Abram on his way to Hebron 
is that God changes his view. God fills his heart with purpose. And he literally tells him whatever direction that you will go. If you trust me, I'll bless you in that direction. Have you ever got to a stop sign as a weird charismatic Christian? And you're like, Lord, do I turn left or do I turn right? And you're scared. Do I eat this candy bar or do I fast this week? Can I tell you we're paralyzed in indecision. And it's not because God's not able to speak. It's because we're not acting in faith. I'm not talking about a disregard for what God has said. I'm simply trusting in His ability to lead me more than my ability to hear from Him. How many of you have told your body to breathe in the last few minutes? But you're breathing. You mean you didn't consciously have to tell your lungs to work? They just do what they do? Can I tell you God designed you to be pleasing to Him? And when you have set your heart on pleasing him, there are many details of your life he will direct specifically. But most of the time, he puts you in a situation and says, trust me. And then whatever direction you move while trusting him, it is a blessing. Man, that ought to be freeing to you. There should be no Christians paralyzed with indecision and fear. Wherever I am, Whatever country I'm in, whatever setting I'm in, whether it is with hostile people or favorable, friendly people, if you move in faith, it's a blessing. One such blessing came in Moscow. I had the opportunity to check my phone. Well, the man took a full-blown right hook at my face. I was acting in faith, and he missed. He whiffed bigger than dead. And Brother Linton just stepped right in there with his back to the man, loving on me, getting our bags, and like, what you doing, man? And just separated everything out. And before long, the one who hated us and was angry with us and had literally taken a punch at my face was just embarrassed of his behavior or that he missed so wildly. It looked a lot like a frantic small child. In any direction that you move, you're blessed. Come on, how does that make you feel? Look at the last verse here. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. By the time we get through Genesis 13 in the Bible, you know the specific people. You know the specific place. You know the plan that God will use to bless the whole world. But Abram has to do something. He has to lift his eyes towards the heavens. He has to remember he's the one with a promise. He has to move in the direction of faith. He has to walk with his God. This ends in a place that is the first mention of Hebron. True fellowship with God. Do you know true fellowship with God? Are you still relating to him like an employee? Are you relating to him like a slave? Do you know the promise, but you don't believe it enough to be generous towards those around you? Do you know that he will bless you in the direction you go, but you go with fear and intrepidation? How sits this with your soul? Do you have a gutter view or a starry real estate view? How did you see the world yesterday? 
How have you seen the world today? Because the man who is in fellowship with the living God has an entirely different view than the rest of the world. How many times, saints, have you drugged your sorry soul into this building and been elevated to a starry view during worship? How many times have you crawled in lower than a worm and left with your head held high like a prince? Do you know what the difference is? It's the man who has fellowship with the Lord. They put me in a little holding cell in Moscow. All of my brothers got to go through. This trip, they got Boz and Nick more than me. I was very jealous. But in Moscow, it was my turn. How do you feel when you don't understand the language? When there's a literal border between you and your friends and you are the one that is detained? Do you feel persecuted? Is it an obstacle or is it an opportunity? I began to have sweet fellowship with the Lord. And then before long, through the window of a window of a window, the booths lined up and I could see my friends through there praying for me. When you have fellowship with the Lord, everything looks different. Instead of something being scary, it's funny. Instead of something being threatening, it's kind of honoring. I want you to know the kind of fellowship that happens at Hebron. This chapter ends with Abram moving to Hebron and he builds an altar at the end of the chapter. Doesn't that sound like the man was encountering the Lord? Have any of you ever built an altar? No hands in the room. Is there nobody left that helped me build this one? Charlie helped me, but he designed it. When you build an altar somewhere, it's because you were touched by the Lord there. I want to tell you that lifting your eyes up, remembering the promise, Moving in a direction of faith that will build an altar in every situation in your life. At the place that God named fellowship. By the time you move to Genesis 15, this man Abram, his promises have been restated. They've been expanded. He has been called credited with righteousness. In Genesis 17, Abram gets a name change. God breathes into him and the exalted father becomes the father of many nations. Now, you know what happens in Genesis 22, right? What happens? Somebody call it out. He's tested by God. How many of you have ever thought of the situation you're in and said, you know, it it might be like Mariah. God might be asking me to raise the knife, but in the end, he's going to save me. How many of you have ever thought that? Give me a show of hands since you're scared to speak. You know, in Genesis 22... He had the potential loss of his son. Hebron's not mentioned in that chapter. But in Genesis chapter 23, he had the very real loss of his beloved. Now come on, reason with me a little bit, saints. What's harder to deal with, the potential loss that God saves you from, or the very real loss that you're experiencing? Real loss. Man, that's all different, isn't it? When you're used to winning, you're used to God coming through at the last minute. And then all of the sudden you experience real, sudden, and painful loss. How hard is that to deal with? 
Man, this church has had some of that in these last few months, huh? We went through a season where every child had a challenge. Every single one had some kind of medical problem. And man, we won! Everyone. We hung their pictures on the wall and we had seven miracles in a row. And then we experienced some real losses. God, that hurts, doesn't it? Man, that's a whole different kind of fellowship with the Lord. It's fellowship with the Lord when He saves you at the last minute and you're all, Lord, you will provide. But it's a different kind of fellowship when you get to endure with Him through the most painful and difficult trials that men can experience. And they're both very necessary for us to grow up in the Lord. One kind of fellowship can tend to make God your genie. The one who grants your wishes. The other kind of fellowship makes Him very much your Savior and the only reason that you're still standing alive and breathing. Both kinds of fellowship are so needed. Hey, we met a famous personality on our trip. Got really interesting hair and has been making videos here lately that everybody seems to watch. I was really proud of the men on our trip. Rather than being starstruck, I gave him a clear and concise word. We've reached the days when God will again make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. What a good word that is to give a famous person. You know how you get those kind of words? You don't get them because God is your genie who is answering all of your requests. You get him because you have to know where you stand with him when things have not gone your way. Pick up with me in Genesis 23. Are you there? Am I rusty? Have I forgotten how to do this? I've been a chauffeur now for 24 days. I've driven as far as it is from New York to California through five countries. You'd be so proud of the men on that trip. You know, Bosch lends them godly, amazing wisdom. It's my responsibility to make sure the car is headed the right direction. And they lack for nothing. God has met their every need. When they need encouragement, He provides it. When they need wisdom, He provides it. When they need the supernatural aiding of the Almighty God, He provides it. And He will provide for you too if you get your view right, if you get your promise right, if you get moving in faith. Some of those men have been saved for 20 years and some of them not quite two years. The man who is filled with the Spirit lacks nothing. Nothing. Say, I'll say to the man who is filled with the Spirit, I'd say, I need help. You help me. I'll say as many times as the pastor tells me to say it. The man filled with the Spirit lacks nothing. In Genesis 23, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. Man, that's dusty. She died. I can say that because nobody in here is 127 years old. We can argue my kids think 40 is old. I don't know whether 40 is old or not, but I know, I know for sure that 127 is old. She died at Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abram, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep 
over her. How many of you know that there's a world of difference between a potential loss that God spares you from and the very real loss He allows you to endure for the sake of His glory? The, The gulf between Genesis 22 and Moriah that we love to preach about where God provides the sacrifice and Genesis 23 where the man loses the love of his life is enormous. Anybody that's been pastoring a long time loves the story of when somebody gets out of the wheelchair. But it's very difficult when they don't. Both are a kind of fellowship with the Lord. Where did Sarah die? What what does it say? Where were they? She died at Kiriath Arba, which is, of course, Hebron. And what is the meaning of Kiriath? Kiriath means village of. Arba. Arba is the forefather of the Anakite race. Arba is a giant. In Joshua 14, 15, Joshua 15, 13, and Joshua 21, 11, the mis- there, there can be no mistake in what Arba is. You can look in some commentaries and they'll say Arba means four. So Kiriath Arba is city of the four, but that is not the explanation in the word. In the word, they say in four or five places, Arba was the ancestor of Anak from the Anakite race of giants. Do you know what I'm talking about or do I need to teach on Nephilim? How interesting do you find the situation that in the place called fellowship, seat of association or alliance where the friend of God built an altar to God where he learned about the way to work with God his wife now dies in that place and you find out it's also a city of giants can I tell you that many times in the Christian's life the giant that we face are disappointing moments the giants that we face are the battles that we thought we would win and we find ourselves broken because we did not win them. Can nobody feel me in here tonight? We love testimonies of the great man of faith that prevailed greatly. But what about the great man of faith that could not be knocked out of fellowship with God no matter what he endured? Sarah died in the village of Arba, in the place of our altars and our promises. There are many giants that we must face. Some of the enemies flat out oppose us. Some of the enemies are our own losses that discourage us. Some of the enemies are the seductive, enticing entrapments that face us. But whether it's intimidation, fear, or greed, we have to do what Abraham does in verse 3. Would you like to read verse 3 with me? In verse 3, then Abram, Abraham, i got to get his name right. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. So what did Abraham do in verse 3? Come on now. you got to rise up. I'm talking about you got to rise up. You can't lay in your loss. Your failure 
It's not fatal. The adversity is going to be your teacher. It cannot become your undertaker. Your setback is a delay. It cannot be your defeat. This is your temporary station. It cannot be your permanent status. You got to rise up. Saints, is something trying to knock you low? You got to rise up. It starts by lifting up your eyes. Looking at the world as God sees it. Is this as bad as you think it is? Or will this be a blip in eternity? It moves to holding on to the promise that he gave you. The promise is true even if you've lost every other thing. It goes on from there to taking some kind of step in faith in any direction that you can take it. Pick a direction and move with God, but you cannot stay laying in a loss. Do you need to pick a direction and move tonight? Have you been tricked into believing that you're honoring God by just standing still and praying? I've heard that before, and I've run you over from behind doing what he's already said to do. quiet in here. I hope it's because you're thinking. Do you need to rise up from something tonight? Why don't you say that with me? You gotta rise up. You gotta rise up. What do you have to rise up from? Is there something that is stealing your princely disposition? Are you supposed to be dwelling with God and instead you've been dumpster diving with the devil? You gotta rise up. You gotta get out of that mess. You gotta leave Lot behind. Lift up your eyes. Grab your promise and move. You cannot lay down in a loss. You think we haven't been there? Oh man. Anybody that's ever loved the Lord has been opposed greatly. And the devil is an awful lot more effective than any charismatic ever gives him credit for. And we're not going to correct that problem tonight. He didn't just rise up. What else did he do in verse 3? Somebody read it out loud. He rose up and he spoke up. Come on, you used to get in trouble for this in school. And now it's been beaten out of you. You don't just lay in your loss. You get up. You got to rise up. And after you get up, man, you better have something to say. Where you at, Lynn? I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. What are you going to say? Well, what have you been packing away in your heart? What have you been hiding in there? What is God bubbling up that expresses a promise? See, when you get kicked in the face and you're falling on the ground, you got to get up and you got to speak up. You better learn to speak the word of faith. Abraham goes into an entire negotiation for something here. He's not just in Hebron. He begins negotiating for a certain cave that you saw a video of Sunday. Machpelah. Machpelah means double portion. You want to have a double portion of fellowship with God? When you got kicked down, you rise up, you speak up, and you go to work for the promise. See, Abram gets beat into the earth here after having his son 
figuratively resurrected from the dead, he sees his wife very much dead. Can we say mountains and valleys? Oh, come on, man. You were a hero in the Sunday service. They all got raised up. It was awesome. And by Monday morning, you were as low as a dog. You don't know how many times that's been the story in my house. Our king will let you experience all kinds of fellowship with him because he's after your dependency upon him. The triumph of receiving your adopted son and the agony of fighting to keep him alive. Double portion of fellowship. But you can't stay beat down. You know what you do? You rise up. You begin to speak up. You start declaring the promises of God. You start speaking in the opposite direction of what the enemy's speaking to you. You hit him with the word. When you feel pressure in a direction, you push a promise right back in that direction. And you do it repetitively. You do it and do it and do it till he doesn't rise up against you. Oh, come on, church, that warrior spirit's got to rise in here. What happens at Hebron in a specific cave called Machpelah is a negotiation occurs. You know what they call Abraham in this chapter? Check this out. In Genesis 23, verse 3, Then Abraham rose up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Forgive me for being tactless, but what difference does a burial site make? Why not cremate her? Why not just leave her? She's dead. What difference does it make? Well, he's not buying a grave site. He's buying the very place that his beloved will be resurrected from the dead. Amen. It's the only purchase that the man made in his entire life that's recorded in the scripture. He purchased it then and it's still marked as his today. He was speaking up in faith. During the moment that he was the most hurt, he was expressing the most faith that a man can have. I don't care what the cost is. I want this field and I want it now. I am purchasing the real estate of resurrection. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. I love the 1984 NIV, but this is a fairly gutless translation. It doesn't say mighty prince in Hebrew. It literally says Elohim Ha'il. I'm sorry, Elohim Nasai. You are a God prince among us. God prince. You know what's really neat about that? Abraham has what as a promise son? What's his name? Isaac. Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to? Prince with God. See, this reputation carries down three generations. Even the lost who were watching how Abraham acted. They said, look, you can't keep him down. He rose up. He speaks up. And he is securing a grave plot that is actually a resurrection site. This man acts like a god or a prince among us. You know, they sell it to him. It's kind of an interesting scenario that they sell it to him, man. 
He wants to buy just the cave. They later found a book of Hittite laws. They found this many years after the Torah was written. They actually found it in our time. And in the Hittite law, if you own the lion's share of a property and somebody owns a small segment of it, whoever has the most trees on the property has to pay the taxes. So Ephraim's like, um, oh man, I, you want to bury your dead here? That's fine. Why don't you take the whole field? <laughs> he didn't want to pay taxes on it. Abraham doesn't care what it cost him. It's almost like today's pain is purchasing a better resurrection for him tomorrow. It's a little bit like he's not purchasing a grave site so much as a resurrection site. Let me ask you, what are your tears purchasing for you today? What is your agony purchasing for you today? What are you enduring today that will gain glory for God's name tomorrow? You know, to even think like that, you're going to have to lift your eyes up. If all you can see is your pain and misery. You know, that's not even how Jesus saw the cross. Why did he endure the agony of the cross, scorning its shame? For the joy that was set before him. He knew what that cross would bring. Glory for the living God. You got to lift your eyes up. Psalm 126 verse 5 says it this way. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. You know, it's because we missed our flight that so many other things happen on our trip. If we hadn't missed our flight, we wouldn't have met some of the people that we met. You know, we were sitting in a restaurant in Georgia stand. That's what the Turks call it. Uh, I, I guess they don't want you to get confused with uh, Georgia in the southern part of the United States. They call it Georgia Stand. We're sitting in a restaurant and uh, the power goes out. And as the power goes out, one of the brothers says, you know, I, I think that I saw this yesterday. I, I, I did. I had, a, I had an experience where I remembered the power going out. I think we're supposed to do something. Another picks up a guitar and we go straight for Horse and the Rider because it's like the all-time Christian drinking song. The whole restaurant pulls out their cell phones. They're all watching. They're all going. Moments earlier, somebody had experienced that lull that you get on a long trip. Are we really doing anything good here? I mean, are any of the prophecies coming true? You know, you know what that looks like? Instead of this, it... That was just dropping. You ever been there? Yes. Of course, as we sang Horse and the Rider, we found out that the Jews that we're going to stay with in Jerusalem were sitting at the table next to us. Is God really in this? You have no idea that you're in the desert of Beersheba and there's a spring that will save your life. Until you look up and God shows it to you. You have no idea that you're not surrounded by enemy armies. They're surrounded by the armies of God. Until you look up. You have no idea until you get into Hebron. The fellowship with God. From God's perspective. The cave at Machpelia is a double portion of fellowship with God. Do you know why? Because he experienced real and total loss. He lost the love of his life 
and he's over a hundred years old when he loses her. Tell me that didn't hurt. And in his pain, do you know what he did? He rose up and began to speak resurrection promises. You know, we can't walk to the place of many of your births. Some of us don't even know who our granddaddy is. But you can walk to Abraham's gravesite today. There's a Herodian monstrosity on top of it that goes back 2,000 years. Prior to that, in almost every century, there is a record of people visiting it. In the 1967 war, Moshe Diane put a little girl down a hole to go down into the, the cave. He couldn't fit. So he found a really scrawny girl. Told her to draw what she saw. In 1981, some Jews were praying and the Muslim guards fell asleep and they took a chisel into their prayer time and they bored out that hole a little bit bigger and they went down in it and recorded what they found. All accounts are, we have Abram, Abraham's grave. Pain now, gain for an eternity. Abraham was not living for the temporary station. He was enduring for the eternal status. This reminds me so much of what Hebrews 11 says. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. You know, every painful thing that you endure for the glory of God is returned to you at the resurrection. Do you want a better resurrection or a meager resurrection? As we consider what Genesis 23 actually teaches, it of course ends with these words. Verse 18. To Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city... Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field at Machpelah near Mamre, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. This happens around 2000 BC and you can walk to it today and it's not anywhere near the end of the story of Hebron. The first mention of Hebron gave us the people, the place, the plan that God had to bless the world. The second mention of Hebron has given us the ultimate method in the resurrection of the dead that he would bless the world. You find it strange that the friend of God never bought anything else? Do you know, not Isaac, but Jacob, he bought one piece of property in his lifetime? It's where Joseph was buried. He bought a plot of land outside Shechem. Both the patriarch and his grandson bought only one thing in their life. A place for their loved one to be resurrected from the dead. What are you investing in? Are you investing in a better resurrection? Let's look at the third mention and examine a way of life. As we do this, this will be Genesis 35 and verse 27. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, 
where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Do you see that we're in the third generation? Abraham, Isaac lived at Hebron, and now Jacob comes home to Hebron. Isaac lived 180 years. That's older than dirt. Then he breathed his last and died. And he was gathered to his people old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We had Abraham buried by Isaac and Ishmael. We now have Isaac buried by Jacob and Esau. And before Jacob dies, he gives instructions about how he would like to be buried. The scripture goes on to record that Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob were also all buried in Machpelah. Six people in the tomb. We have Abraham and Sarah. We have Isaac and Rebekah. We have Jacob and Leah. Rachel would have been there, but she died in childbirth to Benjamin on the way. Six patriarchs. In one resurrection site called double fellowship with God. How do you think you increase your fellowship with the Lord? You're going to have to die a little bit before Him every day, aren't you? And the more that you decrease, the more He will increase. In Genesis 49 verse 29, we find an interesting quote. Then he gave them these instructions. This is Jacob at his death. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. You beginning to get the feeling that this is an important burial site? In this third mention and the corresponding references, we see a powerful message about Hebron. Sons buried their fathers with their grandfathers. Abraham defined a faithful way of life. And those who lived like him were buried like him and they would be raised like him. Oh, come on, saints. It's one thing to say you're a child of Abraham. It's another thing to live like him. It's yet another thing to die like him. And if you lived like him and died like him, then you will resurrect from the dead just like him. How do we imitate a man like Abraham at Hebron? Well, we go back to what God told him. We lift up our eyes towards the heavens. Do you need to tilt your face back tonight? We remember that we have been given a promise because what was given to him as a mystery, we've been included in. We move in a direction of faith, walking With God. Any direction that He shows you. You might want to go north. But feel as if He has called you south. Whatever direction you move. Trusting Him. He will bless you in. We're going to rise up from our problems. We're not going to lay in our losses. We're not only going to speak in faith. We're going to follow up those words. With additional actions. Even if it's at great cost. Some people have estimated the price. In today's terms, that Abram paid for this grave at almost a million dollars. 
That's incredible. What did he value? You know, Hebron represents the city of those who lived faithfully, those who died faithfully, and those who will be raised faithfully. Do you want to be in fellowship with God? It requires all three. And when I say it requires all three, it doesn't require you to have lived faithfully up to this point. It requires you to live faithfully, period. It doesn't require you to die faithfully at some point in the future. It requires you to die faithfully right now. It doesn't require you to be raised at the last and the greatest day faithfully. It requires you to be raised now faithfully. The Zohar, which is a collection of commentaries on the Torah from the second century, says that Adam and Eve were buried at the cave in Machpelah. The Jews there believe this to this day. In fact, we had a little bit of a revival with one named Gabriel there at the tomb. He told us some things that I had never heard and we researched them and found out that it's well known among Jewish traditions. That doesn't make it true, but it does make it interesting. They say that Abram, Abraham went into the cave before the negotiation. The reason he was willing to pay so much is that he could smell or sense something was special about it. Goes on to say that he had an angelic experience and realized that Adam and Eve were there and that this was outside of the garden. As I began to contemplate that, when Adam and Eve were set outside of the garden, what side were they set out on? Well, Hebron is uh, uh, west of Jerusalem. If they were set out and that was the entrance, they would have been set on the Jerusalem side where the temple is. In Genesis 22, we have a great sacrifice where an altar might have been right outside of the garden. In Genesis 23, we have the purchase of a gravesite that could have been right where the garden is. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Whatever you believe about the Zohar and the reason that he paid the price for it, there's at least seven lessons that we can gather from Hebron. Are you ready for seven lessons to gather from Hebron? It's only 8.57 and I'll make them quick. Are you bored with me? Number one, Hebron, fellowship with God, the city, it must be fought for. Joshua 10.36 says it this way. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its kings, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as Eglon. They totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Isn't that awesome? Joshua took the city! Except he apparently didn't hold on to it. How many times have you fought to enter fellowship with with God, but... You didn't maintain it. Man, you were on the mountaintop with him on Sunday. Wednesday during worship was extraordinary. But Thursday morning, right after you uh, arrived at work, you were in Gehenna, not in uh, paradise. Hebron must be fought for. Do you remember what else happens in, in, in Joshua 10? I mean, Joshua 10 is a pretty famous chapter, right? In Joshua 10, it's worth noting that in this battle, Joshua was fighting for the Gibeonites. 
There are people who are not Israel, but by covenant are included with Israel. Same place that he fought for Hebron. He did not ask for more men in the battle. Joshua had a great prayer time with the Lord. The sun stood still. Hailstones came down from the heavens. Do you know the story or do we need to read Joshua 10? What did Joshua ask for? Did he ask for a lighter load? Did he ask for less hardship? What did Joshua ask for? More time. Joshua didn't ask for an easier time. He asked for more of it. When you have to battle for fellowship, what are you praying for? Are you praying for an easier job? Are you praying for better circumstances? Are you praying, Lord, will you pamper me some? Will you help me out? Are you saying, Lord, if you give me five more minutes, I'll whip this thing. Lord, if you give me ten more minutes, I'll get it done. Lord, because there was a prayer that he listened to. Joshua 10 says, and God listened to a man. See, in the battle for Hebron, we can't ask for a costless battle. We can't ask for an easy battle. We can't ask for one that is comfortable for us. But we are allowed to ask for more time to get it done. You know, it's been my custom since about 2011 before important events to say, one more time, Lord. Just one more time. If, if you help me just one more time. After my wife shared this little revelation with me, now I'm just starting to say, Lord, give me enough time to kill them all. Just, just let me get everybody in the room. Like I, I don't care what else happens. Just let me get to them all. Every single... I want more time, Lord. Not one more time. Just more time. What are you praying for? Is it something that God can answer? Is it something that He wants to answer? Are you asking for an easier road? Are you asking for enough time to get all the way down the road where you should be? You want a fellowship with Him? It'll never come through an easier way, but it might come by Him giving you enough time to get it done. Doesn't that remind you of John 12, 27? Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No! It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Is Jesus asking for a lighter load? Is He asking for an easier way? Father, glorify Your name. We need to not be praying, take the cup from me. We need to be praying, Your will be done. Give me what it takes to finish, Lord. I may have lost it all, but let me hang on to the promise. Oh, come on, church. Do you have your eyes lifted up? Is your heart swelling with the promise? Are you moving in a direction that He can bless? Are you asking for time to finish? Are you asking for Him to change the board? can hear the church mice. The second lesson that we learn from Hebron is Hebron is a perpetual battle. It's not a one-time feat. You know how we know that? Because in Joshua 10, he totally conquers Hebron. And in Joshua 14, it says this in verse 13. 
Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel. If you keep reading into chapter 15, it is entirely clear that Caleb had to do something for his gift. He had to go fight and win because there were giants in it. Well, if Joshua defeated it in verse in chapter 10, why are we fighting for it again in chapter 14 and 15? Because if you want a double portion of fellowship with the Lord, you don't get awarded that when you are born again. You get a taste of it when you're born again and you go to war many, many times for it. Are you warring for fellowship with the Lord right now or is your heart and mind somewhere else? You know, we came an awful long way to be here. And where we've come from, they were begging for what you're getting for free every day. How many times do you deserve to hear a message that nobody else has heard even once? The third thing that we learned from Hebron, number one, is that you have to fight for it. Number two, is that it's a perpetual battle. You have to keep fighting for it. Number three, there are satanic giants that defend Hebron. Satanic giants. Joshua 15, 13 says this. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in the land of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out all three Anakites. Shishai, Ahaman, and Talman, the descendants of Anak. There weren't just enemies at Hebron. You know what there was? Giants. The same giants that in Numbers 13, the Israelites turned back for fear from. You want fellowship with the Lord? You're going to have to face giants. Those giants might be physical in this case, but in your case, it might look like a disease. In your case, it might look like a great loss. In your case, it might look like a great disappointment. Or as has happened here recently to some folks I love, it might be a demon that manifests in your room in the middle of the night. It might be many things, but fellowship with the Lord never comes without resistance. You know, you can watch Netflix without resistance. You can go see the latest installment of Disappointment in Star Wars without resistance. No matter how bad they are, and you promise you'll never go see it again because the last one was so disappointing. When it comes out, you go. But fellowship with the Lord, it'll cost you something. The fourth thing that we learn from Hebron is the faithful, they liberate it. The faithful liberate it. Men like Joshua and Caleb... Caleb was said to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. In Numbers 13.30, it says this, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. In other words, you're going to see fellowship with the Lord in a miscarriage. You're going to see fellowship with the Lord in a death of somebody that you love. You're going to see fellowship with the Lord in the loss of a job. You're going to see fellowship with the Lord in the destruction of your dream as you're grabbing on to God's. You're going to see fellowship with the Lord where everybody else simply sees pain, misery, and destruction. 
The faithful know how to liberate fellowship with the Lord from the giants that are possessing it. How do you see it? Are your eyes faithful or do they need to be lifted up tonight? The fifth one. The children of the resurrection inhabit Hebron. In 2 Samuel 2.3, David is talking about his mighty fighting men. Do you admire those guys? Anybody in here want to be one of David's mighty fighting men? David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Where did the mighty fighting men settle? Hey, what is David famous for? Who did he kill? You mean when you got a giant killing spirit, you like to cut off their heads and take their homes? You like to take the place that was oppression, that was something devilish, and make it the very seat of association with God? See, the faithful, they occupy Hebron. They don't stand back and hope somebody else gets there. They liberate it and they live in it. Do you live in fellowship with God or are you just coming on Sunday and Wednesday? You know, the men that he was talking about who occupied Hebron, First Chronicles twelve thirty-eight says, All these were fighting men. You have to fight for Hebron. They volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined. Fully determined. Are you fully determined in Christianity? Or are you partially persuaded? You a powder puff Christian? Are you with the Lord as long as He's doing what you want? Are you with the Lord during the most painful moments of your life because you know fellowship with him can I tell you he's the only reason that some of us still stand the sixth thing you learn at Hebron is it's where David was enthroned in 2 Samuel 5 3-5 through 5, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David was first recognized king at the place that is named Fellowship. And who is buried there? Abraham. I want you to understand something. When Joshua shows up and he sees Hebron and he knows that there's giants in it. When Caleb goes and spies out the land and he sees Hebron and he knows that there's giants in it. Why did two men want to go fight while all the others were somewhere else? Because he knew who was buried there. And he wanted to live like them. He wanted to die like them so that he might be raised with them. There are so many people that want the rewards of Christianity, but they will not live like Jesus. They will not suffer like Jesus. And so they will never raise from the dead like Jesus. Oh, they'll raise, but not like Jesus. Where are you in that? You know, it's so easy to attend a fired up church. 
But if you can't drive past a porn store without being drawn to it, then how does this sit with your soul? David is enthroned at Hebron. Do you know why? Because he fought for it. Guys like Caleb inherited Hebron. Do you know why? They fought for it. Abraham didn't have to pick up a sword to get Hebron. He just had to lose his wife and fight with all that that entailed to see the promises of God through it. Your battle could be entirely spiritual or it could be physical too. But you're going to have to fight for fellowship with God. You know why I'm willing to fight for it? Because of the seventh reason. Abraham and his children will rise at Hebron. Mark 12, 26 says, Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken, Jesus said. Well, if Abraham is alive, where is he alive? At Hebron. You know all nine men that walked into Hebron? All nine felt the presence of God there? That's a crazy thing. None of us have any respect for architecture. None of us like the fact that there's a mosque there. None of us like the setting. Hebron is still surrounded by enemies of God. On every side. And all of us were brought to tears at the cave of Machpelah. We felt something there. Do you mean that the faithfulness of Abraham is still speaking a message today? You know, everywhere that we went, people could feel the fellowship that we have with the Lord. And they wanted it. Many of them wanted it a whole lot more than many of you. Because you think they have it all of the time and they know that they don't. How is that sitting with you right now? You get to sit and soak in the fellowship of God. And there are Russians that never felt His presence till we walked into the bar that they frequent. There are Georgians that never met somebody who was Spirit-filled. There are Jewish people that have no idea that this kind of fellowship with the Lord is possible. We rode in a van with armed Muslims through the Sinai Desert. We weren't sure if they were going to kill us. And I imagine they weren't sure if we were going to kill them. Until they began to feel something was different with us. They couldn't stop hugging us. Can I tell you that's a little unusual? You are so privileged. You have a princely privilege and a precious responsibility. I don't think I have time to teach it, so I'm not. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God was like a field. And in that field, there was a pearl of great price. The guy went away and sold everything that he had so that he could purchase the whole field to get that pearl. 
Today, Ephron's field is Abraham's field. He purchased it. He purchased the whole field because he wanted a cave. That cave would be a little pearl of resurrection power. And when you go stand at the cave today, that is the pearl that he wanted. you know what you see standing all around you? You see Abraham's children. You see those that are born of slavery, the Muslim brothers, and those who were born to be free, the Jewish brothers, but they're both his children. You know what's crazy? It's Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Jesus purchased the field. He purchased the field to get the pearl that's in the center of it. But every man on the field belongs to Him. Have you experienced a few battles for Hebron? Are you hurting? Is your fellowship with the Lord today not what it was at some point in the past? Is there anybody in the room that feels that way? Like if I could just get back to where I was. You know what we call that? Backslidden. You can dress it up any way you want to, but if at any point in your life you're ever closer to the Lord than you are right now, then you have slidden backwards from that position. There's a clear resounding message coming to you. Lift up your eyes. Fill your heart with that promise. Move in any direction that shows faith. The Spirit of the Lord is calling you. He purchased you. Micah 7, 8, do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Are the prophets true? Are they true for you? Then you cannot sit in a place that is lower than you know you are called to be. You got to get up. You got to go up. You got to begin to speak in faith. You got to move in faith. You got to go. The world is in slavery around us. And he purchased them too. Hebron is the pearl in the middle of the field. The whole field was purchased just to get the cave. Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham there. And their slave children and free children are still standing in the field. Waiting on somebody to show them the real Hebron. Jesus purchased them. And we have to perpetually fight for them. Whether Jew or Muslim, he purchased them as surely as Abraham purchased the whole field. They're still standing there today. The Jews are praying at the grave site of Abraham. And the Muslims are praying just above the grave site to Abraham. And in many cases, neither one has the fellowship that you enjoy every day single time you fight for it. Oh, I don't think we can live with that. No. No. But you can't go fight for them if you're not fighting to be in His presence now. Oh, church, now's the time you decide. Did you fight and you got in His presence and it was good, but you're not perpetually fighting for it? 
You're living more outside of His presence than in His presence. Did you fight to liberate fellowship, but you never inhabited the city? You need to pick up your face. You need to change your view. This is the finest church I've ever been a part of. And even among us, some live like dogs. And you were called to live like princes. Stand to your feet.